Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This week's episode focuses on environmental issues in the Middle East. First, John interviews Peter Schwartzstein, a Cairo-based investigative journalist who focuses on environment and conflict. Then, John, Amber, and I talk about how environmental concerns factor into policy discussions on the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. We're talking today with Peter Schwartzstein. He's a journalist based in the Middle East who writes about environment and conflict. Peter, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me. How'd you get into this racket? Uh, my understanding is you start off as a straight journalist doing all kinds of different stories and more and more you're writing about environment stories. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, a, an odd mixture of opportunity and fascination and, and my sense that this was kind of one of the, the biggest stories in the region and that it was one that was receiving um, vastly insufficient attention. Uh, in part, I think it's that you can tell in some ways the story of the region to a greater extent when looking at it through the prism of its environmental problems than you can with a, a more naked, clear-cut look at, at, at things superficially. For example, why does Iraq have water problems? Well, for the most part, for the same reasons, it's got other challenges, sort of corruption, incompetence, the legacy of conflict. So it's a lens to see governance. Exactly. I mean, as enormously challenging as as climate change is for, for the wider Middle East and North Africa, and it, it well and truly is and will become more so uh, e- even more in the future. I do sometimes fear that, that that our talk about climate change in the Middle East slightly obscures the fact that these environmental problems are even more a consequence of, of decades of misgovernance. What is the connection between environment and conflict? It's a tricky one, and it varies uh, slightly from, from place to place. But within a Middle Eastern context, one of the key ways in which this relationship has, has seemingly been playing out is that kind of a combination of climate change and other environmental disasters have been making life more and more intolerable in a lot of agricultural areas. And that's just sort of fueled many of the conditions that have contributed to the emergence of non-state uh, armed groups and jihadi groups. So it, it varies considerably from, from place to place, but basically in, environmental problems are just creating challenges that that many of these states are are ill-placed to cope with in the first place. There's been a migration from the countryside into the city in the Middle East for more than 100 years. Is this somehow different if it's caused by environmental degradation or drought or something else? Does that create a different kind of environment? As you said, so many cities in the Middle East, from Cairo to Baghdad, have swollen over the course of the past few decades because of people moving uh, in pursuit of superior economic opportunities and, and better government services. But the, the speed of these movements has dramatically increased simply because life for, for many farmers and, and, and other folks in rural areas is just more and more untenable. And I would imagine also there's a demographic issue as the population grows uh, that that also creates more crowding that, that was not so much of a problem, say, in the early 20th century that is now. Exactly. I mean, to take Egypt's Nile Valley as an example and the Nile Delta, you've got a, a fairly small amount of, of agricultural land to begin with. And as the population has more than tripled uh, since the 19, uh, sort of late 1950s, it's just led to kind of ever greater subdivisions of that relatively small um, patch of land. And there's and there's housing on a lot of the old farmland, I know, around Cairo. Exactly. There's a lot of debate of, uh, over sort of how swiftly uh, kind of some of this scarce agricultural land is disappearing. could be anywhere from, from as little as 10,000 acres a year to, to more than 100,000 acres. But when you've got 
in Egypt's case, only about uh, eight and a half million acres of truly productive and fertile agricultural land, every little loss uh, is, is, a, is a serious food security and, and economic problem. And you've written about how radicals exploit the poverty, exploit the, the dislocation. How does that work and, and where are we seeing that? One of the, the clearest illustrations of, of this problem and the place that I've perhaps worked on it more than in other spots is, is Iraq. What's happened is that as sort of water access has become more and more shaky, in part because of erratic rainfall, in part because of the state of the country's rivers, farmer crop yields have shrunk, farmer income has, has taken even more of a tumble than, than it previously had. And just to grossly simplify a, a fairly complex problem, uh, it's created openings for terror recruiters and others to sweep in and take advantage of these sort of struggling agricultural laborers with promises of riches and, and uh, salaries beyond their current dreams. So it's all about using poverty and, and promising people money. Exactly. I mean, the more desperate a person is, the more likely they are in some contexts to do things that they otherwise wouldn't. Um, it, th this, this relationship is a tricky one. And is this mostly about water? Not just water for drinking, but especially water for agriculture, desertification, the, the lack of rainfall, those kinds of things. Does it really come down to water? Yes, it does. Uh, within an agricultural context, as with so many other contexts in life, you can go without many things, but water you cannot. In Iraq, there does seem to be a, a fairly clear correlation between areas where there is insufficient rainfall and areas that yielded greater numbers of, of fighters to ISIS, as opposed to areas where there was perhaps a superior access to supplementary water resources, uh, and hence uh, slightly fewer incentives among the native population to, to bow to the entreaties of, of these recruiters. So what can Middle Eastern governments do? Because they can't really control the rainfall. There is no easy solution. You need sort of yeah, diversified rural economies. You need sort of to, to abandon many of these sort of dreams of domestically grown uh, food staples that, that many countries in the region continue to cling on to. You need sort of more non-agricultural work options in some of these areas where, where agriculture is king. There's absolutely no easy answer. It, it'll require a complete reform and reworking of the domestic rural economies of most Middle Eastern states. And are governments responsive to this? I mean, what kind of reception do you get when you lay forward this argument? This is simply not a, an argument that's on uh, most authorities' radar. In some instances, they'll acknowledge it as a problem, but insist that with so many other problems on their plate, they simply can't move on to tackle this. In some instances, I've noticed a, an increased tendency to talk up climate change, but that's more because there's perhaps a, an, an appreciation that this is a more globally accepted um, buzzword that might afford them access to various donor channels. Uh, and I think there's also an appreciation that for as long as they're blaming problems on climate change, fewer people can, can blame them for many environmental problems like water pollution that are much more a consequence of their own poor policies. That said, one of the, I think, unfortunate illustrations of, of the fact that some parts of the region, some authorities are starting to wake to the peril of climate change is the increased persecution of environmental activists and conservationists and others in the environmental field. As governments have yeah, woken up to, to the, the, the problems of, of the environment and the problems posed by climate change, they've kind of adopted that sort of shoot the messenger stance towards many environmentalists. So that's, to my mind, one of the, the very few clear illustrations of increased awareness of the peril of climate change. But the increased awareness is they're, they're attacking the messengers. That's the awareness. Exactly. And I've seen very, very little in the way of concrete action. 
what are the success stories that you've encountered as you've traveled around the Middle East and, and talked to people who care about this issue? The thing that gives me some hope and the thing that I perhaps cling on to in, in the hope of maintaining my last status of sanity uh, is that people are extremely resilient. No matter how grim many of the environmental conditions are, no matter how much so many people are suffering from uh, shrinking crop yields because of increasing temperatures or, or ever more erratic rainfall as a consequence of, of deeper and more severe droughts, many people are pushing on in, in the face of complete adversity. Uh, and that's because they know no other option. Are there countries that you think are doing better than others in, in addressing these kinds of issues? Iraq seemed to me to be a place that was perhaps getting more of a handle on this than some of its peers. You've got a, a fairly thriving environmental civil society in Iraq. Uh, again, like many of their, their counterparts elsewhere in the region, they've, they've faced trouble, they've faced persecution here and there, but they had, perhaps we'll see, perhaps will continue to, to have some success in at least making policymakers more, more aware of the problem. Some of the Gulf states, uh, particularly the, the UAE and I believe Saudi Arabia, have sort of orchestrated a, a number of quite, quite dramatic and necessary policies as a consequence of their environmental and, and climate problems. Saudi Arabia, for example, has over the last few years almost totally given up on, on, on any of its hopes of growing major crop staples. As of last year, they've more or less abolished animal fodder consumption um, out of the appreciation that they simply no longer have the groundwater resources to sustain that kind of policy. You said that Iraq is one of the most vigorous civil societies interested in climate. Is the robustness of the Iraq environmental community a consequence of the, the U.S. invasion and occupation, or is it something that Iraqis stumbled upon independently because they were trying to reverse all the damage that Saddam Hussein had done? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, above all, I think it's because Iraq's environmental and, and resource and climate problems are so in your face that it was the sort of, these were the sorts of issues that, that kind of hit home and remonstrated with the the average man and woman on the street a little earlier than they did elsewhere. The vast majority of Iraqis, of course, live within the Tigris and Euphrates valleys. They've seen how a combination of dam construction upstream in Turkey and Iran and shrinking rainfall has uh, time and again over the last decade or two dropped the, the water levels of both of these rivers. It's the most kind of unavoidable manifestation of, of, of these challenges that one could imagine. To a certain extent, I think it's a consequence of, of the fact that Iraq is is already suffering from these challenges more than, than others. It could also be, be a reflection of the fact that that environment was for so long seen as a, a safer place for those who are activism inclined to direct their energies because of that that long-standing belief that it was a soft issue that, mm -hmm. that wouldn't necessarily trouble the authorities. Interesting. Given the range of people you've spoken to about the range of, of problems in the region, and you're telling us that the environment is, in fact, one of the worst, we've talked about Yemen and Iran and Syria. If the environment is going to make this all worse, we're all going to have to take a deep breath and figure out how to make things better. I, I think in a few years or, or perhaps a little bit more, we'll look back at times like this and wonder how on earth we could have been so blinkered in our kind of minimal interest and minimal action on, on environment and resource issues. But it's the sort of thing that can, and in many instances, has been sort of just kicked down the road because of the seemingly more pressing nature of, of other challenges. And you're sounding the alarm. Trying to, I mean, along with with kind of a a small but but growing number of of extremely talented local journalists and activists and conservationists in the region, it's very easy to wonder whether it's too late. It's very easy to wonder whether many of these situations can be uh, 
at least partly turned around without considerable human suffering. But uh, there, there are green shoots of hope here or there. Peter, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. Next up, John, Amber and I discuss how environmental issues affect policy discussions. I'm here with Will and John, and I want to discuss something that obviously Peter has talked about a lot, the environment, but I want to focus on why such an important issue isn't the focus of policymakers. When it comes to the Middle East, we tend to focus on critical issues, Iran, the Gulf, Syria. And while those are really, really important issues, we don't seem to talk about the environment very much. And this fits into the general pattern that we see in lots of places, that the urgent displaces the important. And there always seems to be something new. But when you talk about climate or environment, you can talk about the weather. There's a weather report every day. But how do you get people really interested in something that is broader, that is more strategic, that is slower, that that things might or might not fit into, like environment in the Middle East? And it's something that's so difficult, right? It's it's a huge topic. There are a lot of different facets to it. And tackling it seems almost impossible. But it has a huge impact on how people live their lives across the Middle East. And it's a driver of instability in lots of places. The instability we're looking at in other fora, but in many cases, the driver is drought or the demise of agriculture or something else that is forcing migration. And then people are happy to talk about the migrations if there's no cause. Right. So, I mean, the things that we're talking about are extreme weather patterns. You know, summer is hotter and drier. Winters are, are wetter. There's erratic rainfall. But Will, how are we seeing this actually affect the average life? Well, I think one of the ways is that it shapes the kinds of jobs that are available to people living in the region. I think agricultural communities clearly are particularly affected by increasing droughts and more erratic rainfall and also crop failure. So, And, and these are things that are, are forecast to continue. Um, the UN's forecasts say that uh, precipitation in the Middle East is going to decrease, especially in the summer. At the same time, it's going to, to increase in the winter, which causes some of the floods that we see. Um, things like the flooding in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia happens almost every year and, and often destroys infrastructure and, and things like that. We were looking into some of the causes of or, or some of the side effects of flooding in Iraq. And one of these issues is that it unearths uh, landmines that were laid perhaps during the Iran-Iraq war, maybe more recently. And lots of these mines are unearthed by the floodwaters and then driven towards people's houses. So the floods are literally sending mines into people's houses or shifting unexploded IEDs as well from the fight against ISIS. And, and the flip like side, of course, is that in general, Iraq is in drought. And the Tigris and Euphrates have less water in them. That affects the marshes in Iraq, but it also affects fishing and everything else. Iran has profound drought, partly driven by irrigation for, for pistachio farming. There are all kinds of problems which you know, partly move populations, partly get people hostile to the inability of governments to govern. To the basic governance challenge for governments is getting harder and people say, so So, what's going on? And that affects, as we were talking about, it affects Lebanese attitudes toward why isn't the government able to deal with forest fires in Lebanon? Obviously, there are extensive protests in Lebanon right now. Banks are shut down. Things aren't quite functioning. Are you seeing a link between that and environmental causes? So again, here's the problem between weather and climate. You can talk about weather all the time. You can talk about the protests. 
Is what we're seeing in Lebanon in terms of the protest, is that a response to systematic failures in governance created by environmental challenges? Are there environmental steps the government could take that would demonstrate governance? Is it because people are being forced off family farms, partly for economic reasons, partly for, for climate reasons? You know, it's hard to disaggregate. What I think is is frustrating is that it feels like some of the larger strategic drivers in the Middle East are in fact, as Peter suggested, environmental issues. But the discussion is very superficial and political as if there are no drivers of the politics. Definitely. And, and on the Lebanon case, I used to live in Beirut and at the start I lived in the center of Beirut and there were three hours of power cuts every single day. I then moved slightly outside to the suburbs and then that went up to six hours a day. That has a huge impact on how people can live their lives. I mean, the fridge would turn off. We wouldn't be able to watch TV, use the internet, things like that. And I mean, a lot of people have generators and so they manage to find their own ways around these things. But these are government systematic failures of failing to provide for their people, which have an enormous impact on people's lives and contribute to their grievances, which then lead to things like the protests we're seeing in, in Lebanon and Iraq. OK, but we have environmental issues, we have climate change, and then we have pure government failure. We talk about trends, we talk about migration, we talk about youth population and unemployment. And all that, to me, seems tied to the environment. If we can't disaggregate them, how do we get policymakers to start talking about the environment as part of the issue, as something that needs to be addressed? I mean, it feels to me that problems of the environment require large-scale strategies to mitigate them. You need a government to deal with drought because individual farmers are overwhelmed by the problem of dealing with drought. You need governments to deal with flooding. And this is one of the problems in Saudi Arabia is the government of Saudi Arabia has not been able to channel all the flood water, which regularly falls in Dunda. People say, well, the government's not competent. I think that there's a way in which as you have more environmental drivers of change, it requires governments to step up their game and but governments have not been able to. But if they're not even factoring them into their policy conversations, how are they going to start pulling together a grand strategy about the environment? I mean, governments in the Middle East, sure, Saudi Arabia has oil money. They're in a lot better position than Iraq is. So how do cash-strapped governments even start to handle this issue? Well, I think part of the fact is that it often takes a crisis for governments to realize that this is a priority for them. And so perhaps it's only when people are taking to the streets on such a huge level and complaining about these issues, or only when there's particularly severe flooding that affects and, and really sort of shuts down a city or something like that. Maybe that's what it takes. But what we're seeing is that these things are happening increasingly commonly. And so if the governments don't start focusing on these more, then it will, these all of these issues will only get worse. And but two other things, you know, one is governments have to step up to the task that they're facing. I think governments increasingly are saying we have to do something here. This is an opportunity for technical assistance for foreign governments to contribute to stability in the region. But it seems to me the third thing is the most important, that if you're going to be a policy analyst looking at the Middle East, if you're going to be something who cares about the future of the Middle East, you can't ignore a key driver of change in the Middle East which is a whole set of environmental issues, which I would argue are systematically ignored by the press, except for, for Peter and a few other bold journalists, systematically ignored by policy institutes, systematically ignored by the U.S. government. This is something everybody says, oh, that's confusing. It's big. It's complicated. Let's talk about the Iranian nuclear program. 
the thing that is more likely to have an effect on more lives is not the Iranian nuclear program, as threatening as many people find it to be, but instead issues of water and drought in Iraq or more broadly in the region. And, and I think one example of that is the UN projects that up to 10 million people in the Middle East and North Africa will be forced to leave their homes just in the next decade. And so that's nearly as many people who have been displaced by, by the Syrian conflict, both internally and externally. This isn't due to a conflict. This is, this is due to these long-term things. So this is really something that should be on policymakers' minds. I mean, to me, climate change is a slow-moving issue, but it's one that because it is important but not urgent, just isn't going to be addressed until it's too late. There are some like local initiatives that sometimes give me hope, but as we've started to dig into it, we're not seeing a lot of these initiatives scale up. So I agree that governments need to kind of take a broader approach. I just don't know what that's going to look like. One of these initiatives, which on paper seemed to have a lot of potential, was called Blink My Car in Lebanon. And they raised over a million dollars in seed money. And basically, the idea was to be able to clean a car using just a cup's worth of water. Um, So it saved an enormous amount of water. But it failed just two years after the initiative launched. um, It folded. And basically, they failed to account for the fact that this required a huge change in people's daily habits. They overextended they charge too much for the services, and it just didn't take root. So there are a lot of initiatives which um, seem really promising, but some of them just really struggle to to scale up um, and, and to spread. And even some with government support, like the Green Bike Initiative in Cairo, which President Sisi is, is quite fond of, doesn't quite seem to be catching on either. When I was in Cairo a few weeks ago and saw bicycles on the road, I'm a cyclist in the United States, and I was terrified for some of those cyclists in Cairo. I don't even like being in a car in Cairo, never mind being on a bike. I think, you know, partly institutions like CSS have to step up and do more work on these kinds of issues. We did a study about 10 years ago called Clear Gold, looking at water as a strategic resource in the Middle East. I think we have to do more work like that, because if you're looking at what the drivers of change are, this is where a lot of the a lot of the change is going to come from. Oftentimes when we look at issues, we take different lenses to make sure that we're capturing all the factors. So we take a gendered lens. And I wonder if we just need to start incorporating into our everyday practice an environmental lens. If you combine it with demography, you have two things that people are not looking at, which I think are going to shape the, the region over the next century much more profoundly than anybody thinks. I think that's where we'll end this conversation today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.